In the trenches every day, cause I stay on my grind. If they hate, they let them make, cause they won't stop my shine. See me running to that money, I just want what's mine. No, I don't waste no time. No, I don't waste no time. Whoa, 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 I don't waste no time. Whoa, whoa. Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain podcast. My name is Max Elster and I'm happy to have an English conversation again with a fantastic guest. Um, I also already had a very cool pre-talk talking about the industry in Germany and um, how startups can help to boost the industry. Um, very, very cool chat already. Um, Jeff Gothelf is the guest of today's podcast. Um, generally, to to um, summarize it in one sentence. He helps organize, uh, organizations build better products and executives build the cultures in order to build great products. So it's something that has been touched a lot in the podcast, but not in the detail that Jeff is going to help us, I think. Um, he's the co-author of uh, the famous book Lean UX, uh, which probably a lot of readers have already um, read or uh, stumbled upon. Um, he's also founded the Sensor Respond Press, um, which helps to to uh, publish books, especially for busy executives who don't have time to publish books. And um, he worked with different German companies, family businesses, but also with the big companies like CNBC, GE, Target, and all the other different established companies that a lot of us know um, and has been featured in different magazines, published, uh, did keynotes on, on very famous um, conferences. So um, I'm happy to have you here, Jeff, uh, to talk a little bit about product, to talk about cultural change, to talk about um, the family business side, maybe a little bit in Germany since you have experienced it. So uh, cool to have you here. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Max. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, last time we had to uh, delay it a little bit because I was sick, and now um, I have the opportunity to chat again, um, and it's it's great. I mean, you are in uh, Barcelona, which might also be quite cool. I think um, you chose a very sunny spot compared to Germany. Maybe you can give a little insight on why you actually chose Barcelona for a place to be innovative and uh, inter interested for change. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The, the story is actually not a pretty interesting and relevant one even to my work. Um, I've, I've been self-employed now for three and a half years. And mm -hmm. in building this business, it's a consulting and coaching and training business. It became evident to me that I didn't really need to be to live in any specific place. The work mm -hmm. was where it was. Sometimes it was close to home and sometimes it was on an airplane uh, to get there. A lot of times it was on an airplane. And so that got uh, my wife and I thinking about where to go. If, if we were to go, where to go? Because we talked about moving to Europe for a long time. Um, we each had very different criteria for what made <laughs> a, a great place to live, which proved challenging because we couldn't decide, right? And so, um, We couldn't agree. We couldn't decide on where to go. She likes she likes uh, Northern Europe. She likes mm -hmm. gray skies and you know castles with moss, green moss on them. And uh, it's cold. Uh, I like <laughs> it's cold exactly and rainy and uh, and I, and I like uh, the sun and beaches and um, generally speaking, just warm weather. <laughs> and so um, so we we decided to do what it is that which it sounds super nerdy but we decided to do what it is that i teach my clients to do which is to run experiments if you can't make a decision it means you don't have enough information to make a decision so go get that information as quickly as possible now look this is a highly risky decision for us we've got kids they're in school they're they're not they're not little kids they're teenagers um 
pulling them out of school where they've grown up in the United States and dropping them in another country, it's risky, right? There's a lot of risk in that. And so we ran experiments and we took the kids every summer over the course of four years for a month to a different country. Okay. And we got an Airbnb in that country and we lived, you know, quote unquote, lived in that country for a month in the summers. Now, look, I will, I'll be the first one to, to admit that these were ideal circumstances, mm-hmm. right? It was either July or August, so the weather should be as good as it's ever going to get. Right. Especially right? in Europe. <laughs> right. It's, it's exactly, right? Um, yeah, in the, in the Northern Hemisphere, right, July or August, the weather, this is as good as the weather is going to get. Um, it was <laughs> summer, so there's no school. Um, there was very little work. I did, I did, mm-hmm. I did a tiny, tiny little bit here and there, but not, not, not much. But we were living in a neighborhood. We were going to the store. We were doing laundry. We were walking to the local coffee shop. And so we did that for four years and for a month at a time. Uh, and what we, were the country, uh, uh, what were the countries or places you chose there? Yep. So, um, we, the, the first year was actually not in Europe. The first okay. year we actually, we went down, down under to Australia and New Zealand. And, uh, and we loved it down there. It was really nice, but, uh, they speak English. Um, <laughs> which is helpful, but also doesn't teach us anything new, particularly. Right. Um, and it is as far away from everybody that we know as possible. Mm-hmm. And it would ultimately have led to me spending even more time on airplanes, because unless you're working in Australasia, it's wow. a minimum, you know, eight, nine hours to the next continent on an airplane <laughs> each right. way. And so, so that unf- we loved it, but it wasn't for us. Um, given given the, the style of work that I have, um, we went to London. Now, London's easy for us. It's you know London is uh, people might kill me for saying this, but it's a lot like New York. Um, you know it's busy and it's hectic and there's tons of people from all over the world and it's great culture and there's always something to do and good food to eat and something to see or a band to catch. Um, but again, they speak English. Um, it was really expensive. And so we passed on London. We then came to Barcelona. I've been coming to Barcelona um, on holidays for a while. And every time I came here, I was like, why don't we live here? You know? mm-hmm. And then so we, we did a month here. We had a really nice time here. It was very hot, but we had a nice time. And then we went one more place. We actually went to the Netherlands. We went okay. to Utrecht. Um, we aimed for Amsterdam, okay. but we couldn't find an Airbnb that met our needs in Amsterdam. So we went 20 minutes down the road to, uh, to Utrecht. Which is beautiful It's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's like right. it's like mini Amsterdam. It's like Amsterdam minus 90% of the noise, you know? And so right. it's and uh, minus uh, the the tourism, right? I mean, Utrecht has less much, less yeah. tourism, yeah. Yeah, significantly less. And so and we right. loved it there. We and and we loved it there as well. But again, for me, the it it, it was raining sideways in July. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not down, but left to right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, and so uh, to me, that was a deal breaker. So we came home from that, and then I made a very strong push for Barcelona. The girls were a little uh, hesitant, but they agreed. Um, you know, there's, there's not just one, but there's two languages here to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been here now a year and a half. Um, no regrets. Everyone's loving it. Uh, the kids are thriving They're having a great time. They're learning languages. They're learning culture. They're making friends from all over the world. And uh, I'm happy. My wife's happy. So 
Fantastic. It's been good. And, you know, I can see the Mediterranean from my house, which is not a bad, uh, not a bad upgrade from the last place, which was New Jersey, which gets a bad reputation. But I love New Jersey. I'll say it right here. I love New Jersey, but it's nice to see the Mediterranean from my house. Right, right. And you're, pro you're close to the beach. You have a, still you have a big city. You're like more or less in the middle of Europe. Um, so I think that's a very interesting conversation point here because I think we can we can point a direction from from this from this story um, since you somehow talked about cultural change within your family i mean um, it's somehow trial and error testing different locations understanding the behavior of every single family member um, in a different country so it's really an, like analyzing a product maybe a little bit from different standpoints even though family is totally different from uh, from product building but i think What's interesting here is maybe to ask is what's the correlation between like um, the the culture building in in the family part that you have made, especially in the four years of traveling to different countries and seeing different countries and managing um, different stress levels with your family in different locations and understanding what everybody wants uh, in regards to future living, and in 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 on the on the other side building a culture in building a team that has culture as a first mindset point where people are interested in changing people are interested in testing different environments to make a decision what do you see where's the correlation between um, those two experiences that you have made over the last 10 15 years so look there's a direct correlation here because like i said this this is exactly what i teach organizations but i think what one thing that you just said in that question is really is really key to all of this you said teams that are, that want to change right? right we as a family we wanted to change we we were curious about other things and mm -hmm. we wanted to try something we wanted we wanted to to improve our situation in right. theory right that, that was the, the the theory was that this was going to be better interesting, mm -hmm. different, unique learning experience, and ultimately better than what we were doing before. That is key. Look, most families, certainly in the, in the United States, never do this, right? The overwhelming majority of, of people in the United States never relocate to, they never move, much less relocate to another country, right? Um, so you've got to have the kind of people leading an organization, if you talk about the families and organization, right? Um, leading an organization in, in uh, who are curious about ways to improve, who are curious about change, about, uh, there's a, um, there's a phrase I love, I, I mean, I'm borrowing it, well, I'm stealing it, let's not borrow, let's be clear. Uh, I'm stealing it from a guy. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to use it word, verbatim, word for word. Um, from, I heard it from Astro Teller. Astro Teller is the guy who runs Google X, the, mm -hmm. the moonshot laboratory. And um, he, I, this was in his TED Talk. And he, he's, he uses a phrase called enthusiastic skepticism, yeah, which nice. I love. Yeah, it's a great It's fantastic. Um, And uh, it, it basically what he says is like you want to be enthusiastically skeptical, which means that you're excited about discovering the next improvement, about mm -hmm. the next best step forward. Um, you know, the easiest thing to do is nothing. Right. Um, and, and that's a choice, right? I, I, to quote the great poet Getty Lee. Do you know who Getty Lee is by any chance? I do. I don't actually. You, I'm sorry. You don't. Getty Lee is the uh, – vocalist, bass player, and lyricist for Rush, the legendary Canadian prog rock band. Um, Interesting. 
get in the famous one of their most famous songs is I'm nerding out heavily here. I apologize. He says, "If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice." So, um, <laughs> for those of That's you who get that reference. Great. For those of you who don't, I apologize for quoting Rush. Um, but, <laughs> but never. The Hopefully, we get a lot of views. Poet. I'm sure yeah. Rush gets a lot of views now. They, they <laughs> do. I mean, it's been around for 40 years at least. Um, anyway, but that's the easiest thing to do is nothing, right? But if you're enthusiastically skeptical, it means you're always looking to improve your situation, whether it's your, in my case, my family situation, your product or situation, your cultural situation, right? The way, way that you work. And it's, I think it's that quality, that enthusiastic skepticism that ultimately leads to continued success for organizations. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the companies, the cultures, the leaders who uh, are always – you know, and, and maybe this is a terrible way to live, right? But they're never fully satisfied with everything, right? They, we, right. we reach a certain milestone. And they say, that's great. Now let's go let's, – what's the next thing? Right, I think mm-hmm. it's that it's that entrepreneurial fire that that keeps organizations moving forward. Drive, right? I mean, um, yeah, that's interesting because I think I, ju- I just had an interview with uh, Fabian Westerheide a couple of weeks ago, who's like a, a very um, famous AI expert here in Germany, and um, he also talked about like the mindset shift that, especially nowadays, a lot of German companies they live in somehow a a little bubble. They're very satisfied with the last fifty years. They have made enormous success, but now actually having the generation that has built up fantastic companies really interested or uh, analyzing them, like the generation now that is leading the companies and analyzing that they are especially not interested in making the big change now because they have seen success in the last 30, 40 years and really making that mindset shift to now starting from zero again more or less especially from a mindset perspective and really building up a new company in the in the already uh, in the company that's already happening there um really understanding that cultural shift is the only necessary part now to build a new company more or less out of the um out of their current situation i think that's something that a lot of people here in germany are struggling with so i think that the interesting part here is now how would you how would you go forward um, if you talk to companies now that have been successful for the last 15, 20 years and really stepping up the next milestone or stepping up to the next milestone to to have the cultural shift and to build greater products, to build products that have an interest or have a need for the, for the next generation, right? Yeah. So I work with large companies. That's, those are my clients, medium to large companies, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of work in Germany, and I've worked with many of the largest companies in Germany over the last you know, 10 years or so. In fact, I was in Germany last week working w- with one of the big telcos and the executive team there. And I'll tell you – I'll say to you what I said to them. Um, the way that we get people to start to realize that the historical momentum that got us here does not guarantee – the same success over the next 50 years mm-hmm. um, is, is to reimagine yourself as a software company. Now, that is a foreign concept for telcos and pharmaceutical companies and uh, you know logistics companies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, airlines, right? No, we're not. We're not a f- software company. We fly airplanes and cargo and people, right? We run airports. Um, the only way to operate a business at scale in the 21st century is with software, with technology. The only way to build it in the 21st century 
is with with technology and software. And the only way to scale it is with technology and software. And and guess what? Like the startups of the world, they know this. They know that they don't need to you know to to build a significant amount of infrastructure in order to start a competitive business with an incumbent organization. Right? Almost everything is available as service. And so um, this, the message is, if you, the first message is this, you have to think of yourself as, a, as being in the software business. Now, why is the, what's the benefit there? The benefit there is that the nature of software has fundamentally changed in the last 10 years. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I started my career, <clears throat> I don't know if I would have been able to make the same case as, as in, in as compelling a manner. But today, because technology is continuing, well, I mean, back then, look, you bought software in a box, right? You went to the store and you bought a box of software. And so there really was no difference between uh, manufacturing software and manufacturing anything else. But software is continuous, which means that it never ends, which means that we're building systems, which means that we have a tremendous opportunity to learn very, very quickly how effectively we're delivering value to our customers through these technological systems. And the faster we can learn, the faster we can react, the faster we can respond, right? Sense and respond, if you think about that's the name of the book, right? So uh, the faster you can sense, the faster you can respond. And so you've got a tremendous opportunity to build this continuous conversation with the market. Now, the next, the, the thing where this, the, the light bulb Shifts. The second half of the pitch is, well, if you, if you buy the idea that you are in the software business, then managing a software-based business is fundamentally different than managing a manufacturing-type business or a, a, a you know, command and control kind of business because the, the production of stuff is significantly less valuable. Right? Our goal is not to produce stuff necessarily. Our goal is to change the behavior of our customers in a positive way. Right? We call that outcomes, right? Outcomes over output. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and because we're building systems and because consumer expectations are changing so rapidly on a, on a monthly basis almost, um, there's too much risk and uncertainty to try and predict the future with three, four, five-year roadmaps and plans and things right. like that. Right. And so use the technology, use the pace of learning that you can get out of that technology to continuously improve what you're doing and measure success as positive changes in your customer's behavior as opposed to we shipped the software or we, we, you know, we produce more uh, you know, things now. That, that is not the true measure of success in a digital economy anymore. So that so that's it. and look, I said that to you in about two minutes, and um, I, I've said it to other companies in far longer and more illustrate illustrative words and slides and case studies and so forth. But it's it's a fundamentally uh, different mindset than most of these organizations use today. Right, and the interesting thing I think here is that the, what you just said, right? There's there are so many elements that come together in building products that are gonna last in, for the next generation, right? It's not just building, it's not just integrating software from a box. It's really integrating systems. It's really understanding the customer behavior. That's what you said. So there are different elements. I think 
um, that that come together to really build products that are gonna live live longer and have the, and have like the next generation uh, be impacted. Um, I think from from my standpoint, a question here is in a world of complexity that we have now. I think many companies now they don't really know where to start, right? I mean, they see customer-centric companies like Amazon or Apple that really try to understand the customer at first hand and then build the products that they that they offer. And then you have um, you, then you have the cultural part where where people know okay we need to have an agile transform we need to have an agile transformation process in order to build better products. But I think starting at a a a, a small step is something that's very very difficult. Of course, very a lot of companies whether they are startups, big corporates, or family businesses, they all try different things but it's not really something where there's a lot of substance behind it maybe and um, a lot of companies are struggling to make the first right step what do you recommend especially i mean you were at a telco company last week what do you recommend in that regard how can they make a first step do they have a need to have an accelerator do they need to have a cultural shift bottom up uh, um, or what's something that you recommend as a first step to test and learn so Look, you've got to comp this kind of change is company wide. Company wide change at, at any company, but certainly companies with tens of thousands of employees, mm -hmm. is very risky. So we've got to compartmentalize the risk. We've got to reduce the risk. So how do we do that? We run experiments, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of back to this theme of, of running experiments, right? Um, the experiment that we, we talk about here is a pilot team or a pilot effort where there's maybe two teams that are figuring out how to work this. And and what we do is we take those, we create a pilot team. Now, to be clear, what I'm talking about here is a small, cross-functional, dedicated team that is self-sufficient. They can do everything they need to do, and they can make their own decisions. We then take that team, and we and they're dedicated only to this pilot initiative. We give them a time box. So we, we, again, we compartmentalize the risk. They're not doing this forever. They're not doing this for 12 months. Let's give them three months, right? That's mm -hmm. fair. Let's take six to eight people, give them three months, and then give them a problem to solve and not tell them what to make. Interesting. Right? That's the key. And th this, is, this is where the mind, like, starts to break, right? This is where people start to snap a little bit. They're like, but I'm the, the boss. I tell people what to do, right? That's that's what I do, right? That's what they told me at business school, right? Is that I tell I, I tell people what to do, um, and all of a sudden you're telling me not to tell people what to do. Well, that's not a, sort of what I'm telling you to do as as a leader is to provide direction, mm -hmm. provide strategic direction, provide constraints. Very very important guardrails. This is in scope. This is out of scope. Right? right, provide those constraints, and then uh, let the teams do what you hired them to do. Let them make product, let them make service, let them do whatever it is, and measure their success, not in terms of what they make, but how they impact customer behavior. So let's take a real example, like H&M, for example, a retail, a retail example like that, where they might have a goal of increasing same store sales by 50%, right? That's a mm -hmm. behavior. Now, that's a behavior that is strategically important to that company. So th that's also a key aspect of this pilot team effort. Now, we take this pilot team, 
And we say, look, your job is to increase same-store sales by 50%. That team literally has an infinite set of choices about how to solve that problem. Right. They don't know what the right combination is of pricing strategy, product choice, marketing, presentation, store layout, uh, online shopping tools, in-store shopping tools, whatever it is, right? An infinite number. And so they've got to experiment their way towards the best combination of those things. Is there like, until is it important they can, which people are in the team? Sorry to interrupt, but is it important which yeah. team members are part of it? So the team has to be cross-functional. And by cross-functional, I mean they need representatives from, uh, you know, you know the, the, the people who are involved in the delivery of this particular service. Um, and they need to be self-sufficient. So they should be able to do as much of what they need to do on their own as possible, mm -hmm. ideally. So if it's, if it's a digital team, product managers, designers, and engineers is key. If there's a, if there's a brick and mortar, if there's a real world component here, maybe they need um, you know, a, 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 per, a, a buyer or a, you know, a merchandiser or something along those lines, right. and some, maybe, a man, maybe a salesperson or a sales manager from the store to help as well. Um, But then that team it then experiments their way to, through a series of, of their own ideas until they find the right combination of, of marketing strategy, product choice, technology, store layout, et cetera, that delivers the desired change in behavior, that delivers mm -hmm. that increase in same-store sales. That's the goal. So, so that's where we start. We, and then at the end of that three-month process, that team then essentially comes up to their organization and says, look... We, We've been this pilot team. You asked us to increase same-store sales by 50%. We've worked for three months. We've increased same-store sales by, I don't know, 18%. Mm -hmm. right. Here's what we've learned, and here's what we'll do next. And so what, we've, what we're doing here is we're retraining, the, we're teaching the team how to work in a new way. We're right. teaching them how to work in this new way within the confines of their, their company, which is going to be different than any other company. And we're teaching their managers and their executives to lead teams in this new way as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's always my recommendation is set up a pilot effort, a strategically relevant one, assign that team, that pilot team, a problem to solve, not a solution to implement, but a business problem to solve. Give them a clear measure of success as a, as a change, measured as a change of customer behavior. Mm -hmm. And then let them go. See what and happens. And you think that's going to be a? I love that because I think that's something that a lot of people probably would not do because they are they don't know what's happening, right? I mean the 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 sphere of like not knowing what's going to happen because we just let people run. And leadership is not about really telling or giving people structure. It's more about like taking a step back and letting them flow and letting ideas flow. I think that's a very interesting approach that um, especially I think German companies can learn from like American, the American startup landscape um, that, that has been evolving the last, uh, last century. I think what's interesting here is maybe a question. Do you think those um, those employees that are going to focus on like those little three month sprints, are they going to be full time um full-time busy with like those projects or do you think it can also be like the google concept where like 20 of the time goes into like like a more creative process like like the one that you described now i 
wholeheartedly believe that they have to be dedicated to this initiative 100% of the time. Okay. And to me, this concept of, well, I'll give you 20% of your time to do things on your own. Um, it doesn't look, there's going to be a lot of ideas. A lot of those ideas are going to suck. Um, a lot of those ideas aren't going to be strategically relevant. And then it, and then at some point, if I have a good idea, why would I give it to you, my boss? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I'm if I'm an, an if I have an entrepreneurial streak, if I'm if I'm entrepreneurial, right? Um, and I have a good idea. I mean, why would I give it back to the company? <laughs> I guess unless, <laughs> uh, right? No, I mean, look. If you think about it, right? If, unless unless there's a path to owning that idea and maybe getting some kind of equity in the in that idea, right? So what's mm -hmm. interesting here is that there are organizations that do build that kind of path, internal incubators, accelerators, um, uh, you know, I don't know if they still do it, but Adobe for a while had this thing mm -hmm. called the red box, Adobe red box, mm -hmm. where, yeah. you, know, you know, the thing where they, you got a, right. a red box with like $1,000 and some Post-its and a Sharpie. Mm -hmm. and uh, And then if you could, prove that you could turn that into a business you got a blue box and a team and whatever else right all right so doing those, a little those... like competition out of it yeah exactly but but even even then that's that's still part-time in your spare time you still have a day job why not give people full time to to do their best to do their best work mm -hmm. um so to me 100 percent dedication is is the key the key, and again, I, I get it. It's risky. We don't currently work that way. People people work on multiple projects. Don't change the way the fifty thousand people work overnight. Right, right. Change the way that fifteen people work for three months. Learn from it, and then start to scale it. Interesting. I love the approach because I think it it, it describes how cultural shift and um, like generally employees mindset shift happens to be a reason for uh, products coming to the stage that have not been there before. And I think um, just just analyzing a market and then building a product based on a market size, for example, has been something that we have been doing as humans for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But now understanding that maybe ideas come from within and not from the market. Of course, there needs to be a market for the product, but at first you have to be creative um, within the team, within the company in order to build products that, that have a long-lasting impact for the company. I think I, I love that approach. It's, it's the, look, it's the only way forward, I think, um, because this concept of the boss knows best Mm -hmm. And we know how to produce the best thing, and no one else can do it as as good as we do it. Is an outdated mindset. There's too right. much change. The boss doesn't know best all the time. Um, the boss may have a vision and strategic direction and a goal for the company, but th there's just too much change. There's just it, everything's you know you know it's it's not like it was it was 50 years ago where it would take months to a year for a product. Months to years for for a new product emerge on the market. Right. People with with obviously with technology and software and three D printing and everything else, you can get physical products on the market. I don't know, in six weeks, something like that. I mean, you remember? Mm. I don't know. I don't know if you have kids, but but um, about a year know. ago, maybe a, a year and a half ago, there was this fidget spinner craze. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, you know what I'm talking about. The most selling product in every store in in on the globe. <laughs> Yeah, but, but, so, but how did that happen? 
right? How did the entire world get overrun with fidget spinners in six weeks? Right. Right? Like all of a sudden somebody, somebody realized that there was a thing here and they converted their manufacturing facilities to, to, to make these things very, very quickly. The fact that we can do that um, is, uh, is, an indica- is an indicator that the, the, the barriers to entry, the competitive advantages that organizations have uh, are disintegrating. Interesting. I mean, yeah, the fidget spinner is a, a fantastic example for a, a random, there was probably not a market before the product was built, right? I mean, it was just an idea right. that somebody has come up with, uh, maybe in a creative session like you described it before, and it just came up and it blew the market. I mean, that's something that was very interesting to see last year. And every child that I saw on the street was using the product, uh, even though there was no marketing, no Facebook ads, no Google ads. It was just based on the network effect um, of this product, um, which is interesting. I mean, there are so many factors that come into play. Of course, it's a, it's a clearly it's a B2C product um, um, that has had a network effect and reached uh, millions of people. Um, maybe because we are like about to go into the last minutes, maybe a question that comes up now since you talked about cultural change, organizational change. Um, we talked a little bit in the pre-talk about it. Like, what, where do you think the future is heading, right? I mean, we're talking about established companies that have been on the globe for um, for hundreds of years, and they are now coming into a generation where technology is uh, is being the most relevant uh, source to build products um, and and build the company. They are still more or less maybe in another world, in the old world. What do you think? Like, if you look from more like a global perspective, where's where's the globe and where's society going from a standpoint where technology, business building, um, and many different factors come together? What, what's your what's your future out, outlook look like? I think that the the future of the business world belongs to the uh, perpetually curious. Um, you know, I think that that's that's what I believe. I think that if if you're leading an organization or if you're in a position of leadership mm-hmm. in a successful company, and you believe that your past success is going to carry you forward um, with the same trajectory, um, I think that you're mistaken. I think that there's too much risk, there's too much uncertainty, and there's just too much change uh, today to to believe that. And so the sooner that we can build, we can take advantage of the reality of modern businesses to build learning loops, mm-hmm. continuous learning so that we can continuously improve the way that we work, deliver value, um, who we hire, how we hire, how we incentivize, all of those things that, that build culture. Um, the, the sooner we, we solidify uh, our, our future security. I think, the, I think organizations that think that they're too big to, to succumb to, to new companies, to startups, um, are mistaken. Yes, your success and your size will carry you forward for a long time to come, right? We were joking in the, in, before we started recording. Um, mm-hmm. I used to work at AOL, right? AOL um, was huge uh, right. in the 90s, right. right? And yes, they're still around to, in some capacity today. I think they're called something else and then merged with a bunch of other companies, mm-hmm. right? But but they've been irrelevant for 15 years, something like right. that at least. 
at this point. Um, and so, yes, your, your, your size, your momentum will keep you going for a while, but it won't be forever. And eventually you become irrelevant and you get overtaken. So stay curious, stay enthusiastically skeptical. Those would be my advice. Fantastic. Love that. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a very soft example with AOL to see how, um, how s slow maybe a company can, um, can just be eliminated. But there are other examples like Blockbuster who, or Nokia, right? Who have just went downwards, uh, within a second, more or less. Um, that's great. I love, I love that, love that, um, love that learning from, from your part and your outlook on, on the future of society and business and the business world. Maybe a last couple of words. Um, what are certain, um, Uh, resources that you would recommend it could be books could be a podcast that you regularly listen to uh, what's something that you want to want to recommend as one single source for for the listeners so i would recommend uh barry o'reilly's new book unlearn uh, unlearn barry's written unlearn yeah barry's written a great book that uh, gets at the heart of what we've been talking about which is the, the obstacle Uh, of, of getting companies to, to move forward. Like they've learned how to do things a certain way. It's gotten them this far. And without unlearning what got them this far, they'll never move forward, right? So that's, that's the key. And it's a, it's a great book um, and I, I highly recommend it. Fantastic. We'll put that into the show notes. Um, how do you keep your to-dos together? Do you have a certain tool that you recommend or you use uh, to have your to-dos all set up? <laughs> it's... Uh, Trello. So I, I keep a, a, a personal Kanban board on Trello. And then my inbox, believe it or not, I'm a big fan of inbox zero. Mm -hmm. um, and so between Trello and my inbox, those are usually my ongoing to-do lists. Fantastic. And um, how can people get in touch with you or start following your, your journey in, your, in the business world? Um, how can people follow up on, on everything you do? So I'm, I'm super easy to find. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at jboogie, which is a, a, a longer story that we have time for today, maybe next episode. Uh, <laughs> Please. But uh, And then uh, um, I write on Medium uh, once a month. I, mm -hmm. publish, I publish a newsletter. I, I send a newsletter, and then I publish it on Medium. So it's there once a month. Um, and then you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Jeff Got Health on LinkedIn. It's always a good place to go as well. Um, and I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm – easy to find. And all of my events and stuff is on my website, which is come. So go there. Fantastic. So we got to, got to get you to Germany to give the people the chance to, to meet you in real life. Then um, that's, that's probably the next good step. Not, not that hard. I, I'm in Germany many times a year. So <laughs> super Fantastic. easy. Cool. Love it. Jeff, thanks for your time. Thanks for the great chat. Um, really appreciated chatting with you about business building about cultural change organizational change and building products that are going to last a little longer than maybe the last uh last 40 50 years but really being in that constant change and uh, thanks for your time really love it my pleasure max thanks for having me you're welcome